The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. kind of hot right there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing both of the arms of a near dear Savior and of you as the ancient of days. We can sing of you, we can think of you because you are both exalted and transcendent, high and lifted up, eternal in existence, and also near, right up close, come near, imminent. Thank you. Thank you that you are not only one or the other, you are the God who reigns and you are the God who came near to help. A sweet, sweet truth that makes it possible for us to know you and to rest in you. You've got it all in your hand. It's going to be fine. And you've come near to grab us and take us to be with you. It's going to be fine. In sitting in this, this, this dual, beautiful dual reality, will you, will you now draw near and show us something of your glory? Will you draw near to help? To help us consider great things that happened here on the earth for us. They did great things, you accomplished great things, you accomplished great spiritual things, and you did that for us to save and now to show us, to teach us, to inform us. And so please open our eyes to help us to see what you've done, to come near to it and to rest in it. So speak the truth of this passage, Lord, and build your church with it and bring honor to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Do you sometimes wish that Jesus would just prove it to everyone once and for all? That he is all that he claims to be, that the Bible's true, that the Christian faith is true. Just prove it, Jesus, to everyone. Prove it to me. Prove that you are who you say you are beyond any shadow of a doubt. Come on. You can say that to Jesus. And his answer will be, no. I'm not doing that again. Not again, because now you want me to. If, if, if the you then to be the next person, the next person, people down the hall, on and on and on. Some ask that with good motives, sure, because they want to know. But, but some asking one of those questions that isn't really a question seeking an answer. You know, the, the kind that's not really wanting to be informed because it, it would be very inconvenient to be informed. One of those questions is not a question. So some ask from, from good motives, actually, but many ask from bad. And one way or the other, Jesus gets that asked ask that question a lot. Which brings us to our passage today in Matthew 12. Prove it, Jesus. And he says, no, I've done that already. 
And there is one great sign coming up soon, but beyond that, I will not play this game again and again and again. The evidence is there for those who have eyes to see it. I'm the great servant. I am the Messiah King come to save. The evidence is there. You must embrace it. And if you do, you'll find life. And if you don't, you face terrible destruction. That's what we'll be looking at today in Matthew 12. As the text continues on with this situation that we saw last week, a tense passage of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, now joined by the scribes who would have been experts in the, the, the Bible law, the law of God. It's, it's similar to what we saw last week, and it might have happened immediately following what we saw last week, but the language does also just barely allow for it to be a conversation that happened another place, another time, that Jesus has joined in here to this, to this context because it fits right in line with the theme. This theme of conflict. Either way, it flows very directly out of what we saw last week. And as such, it has, as we said last week, a different sort of setting and tone than what we usually find here in a church with a church congregation. So some of this language does not apply evenly and fairly to all of us. But the point in it does. The message here does apply to all of us. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let me read the passage, verses 38 to 45. And then I'll draw out two observations from it. This is Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Matthew 12. Make two observations. Here's the first. The resurrection proves Jesus is the Christ that we must hear. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Christ that we must hear. The passage begins with some scribes and Pharisees saying to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to show us a sign. And that might sound okay, that teacher sounds respectful. And on the surface, asking for a sign to verify or to prove that God is in something, that God is at work, is that itself is not wrong, and it's actually done fairly often in the Old Testament. So you might come to this at first and say, what's wrong with this? 
Well, a lot, actually. The politeness is veiling their real attitude, which we've seen a bunch now already. The, the scribes and Pharisees have a resolved, contrary, biased opposition to Jesus. They are out to get him. So this is not an honest question asking, you know, we, we really want to know, are you the Messiah or not? Are you the one that we are supposed to listen to? We really want to know. No, they don't. That point about who Jesus is and, and the authority that he carries with them and the fact that he should be heeded, that's been made over and over and over and over again. Think, think even back to chapters 8 and 9, for instance, where the, the theme of authority was brought in with he teaches like one who has oh, unique authority. Everybody has seen this. So this is surely a false request. But they ask it, give us a sign. Well, I mean, look back. I mean, what more could you want? Well, evidently what they want is something that's not just a straightforward miracle. They want some sort of a display. Maybe something like turning stones into bread or jumping off a really high building and defying gravity. Something like that. Something that's, that's really abnormal and perhaps just, just off the wall outrageous. Show us something. Bow to our unbelieving whim. Prove it. And Jesus says, no. And then calls them out with the vast majority of the people at that time. He calls them all this generation. He calls them out in stern language, which understand, is not just a ticked-off guy throwing around insults. This is the truth. It's Jesus saying it. It's the truth. Talking about the great majority of the people there at that time, it's the true assessment of them and of others everywhere else who like them are refraining from siding with Jesus because they just don't want to. an evil and adulterous, that is spiritually adulterous, rejecting, turning away from the God who has loved them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, presenting as if it would be ready and willing to listen to me in faith, if only there was proof that they should. I'm not playing that game, no. There will be no sign. So, before we get too far into this, it's probably a good idea to just pause right here and say, is there something here already for you? I don't know everybody here. I know a lot of you, but I don't know everybody here, and I don't know who all is going to listen to this online or hear it later. It is quite possible that somebody here or somebody listening to this needs to stop right now and ask themselves a question. Ask yourself. You know you. I don't know you. I want Jesus to prove it. Why? Is this asking in me, asking a, that is a genuine request? Because I really want to know. Or is it a false, one of those questions, it's not really a question, I'm, I'm actually just dodging. I want to appear to be fair and open-minded and even-handed, but really I'm using constant questioning as a way of keeping it at arm's length and holding off ever making a decision about what I've already seen. 
That is people. I don't know if it's you. That is people. It was people then. It's always people today. The genuine question, the genuine seeking of an answer, the genuine seeking of a sign, that Jesus actually is going to respond to that. But the fake question, the questioning from unbelief because of unbelief, he's just going to leave you there because of unbelief. He says to that one, no, which is his answer here, sort of. There will be no further signs right now. He's not going to perform some act on demand, but he is going to give another great sign one day. End of verse 39. He will give the people of that time there and from every time thereon, he will in fact give them a sign, one further great proof, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Probably familiar with the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's about how God sent Jonah, who was already a prophet in Israel. He sent, them, sent him to the wicked city of Nineveh, the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, these people were not good. Cruel, wicked, evil. And God sent his prophet there to preach to them about their pending judgment. Because, think about this, if and when God's going to judge somebody, he doesn't have to tell them beforehand. He can just do it. He sent Jonah there to preach about judgment because actually what he was intending to do was have mercy on them and calling them to repentance so that he could forgive. That's actually going on there. That's the book of Jonah. And what most people know of it today, if they know anything of it, is actually the same thing that was most known and most easily remembered back then and ever since. People don't really know or remember the big storm of chapter 1 and they don't know all the details of the preaching and repentance and how God dealt with Jonah in chapter 3, which is actually the main point. If they know anything about Jonah, they know about chapter 2, that Jonah spent a, a little bit of time there in the belly of a great big fish, often called a whale. doesn't actually say that. Jonah was in the belly of a great big fish. That's what people knew. He spent some time there. It says that explicitly there, he was there three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, carried down into the depths of the sea, and then God miraculously brought him out of this burial, back up to the surface again, so that the message of repentance could go forth and be believed. Now, the book of Jonah does not say but Jewish interpreters understood and taught that a key element in the Ninevites' very surprising repentance was that they understood and heard about this bit about being in the fish. When Jonah told them who he was and why he was there, he also told them how he came to be there. And they saw that as a sign that God was in this for their good, determined to bring the message to them. And they repented and believed and were saved. The sign of Jonah. Like so many Old Testament signs, prophecies, we can write off in the margin if you want, there's often a word used called typology. It's kind of like a, a living prophecy, a model 
Like so much Old Testament prophecy, it's not explicitly one man or, or some prophet or prophetess saying like this about the future. It's actually something that happens really in time and space to particular individual people that matters for them, but also has the effect of like creating a blank. And when you read through something of, of print, you read through, and you come to a blank, you know there's supposed to be a word in there. And maybe you've got to wait a little bit to figure out what word is supposed to, but you know there's a blank there. It's supposed to have something that, that's for something else. So much Old Testament prophecy works that way. It creates a, a framework. It creates like a holding spot for something later and bigger and, and more amazing to come along and fill that in. It, it's, it's about now, but it's also about the future in some way. So we, we come and we see a prophet buried three days and three nights, and he's brought back up to the surface, and then he goes and preaches, and then there's repentance, and his message brings light. That kind of sounds like something I know. Uh-huh, it does. And realize, God did not look back at this and say, you know that Jonah thing, that I can use that. He designed that first to create the blank, to prophetically prepare us for something to come, something greater, to fill it in. And Jesus is saying here in verses 39 and 40, that Jonah thing was about me. Oh, it was about Jonah and Nineveh, yes, but really it was about me. I'm going to do that. I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, buried. And maybe in our Western minds that sounds like 72 hours, but it's not. Counted inclusively, any part of a day includes the whole day and night of that day. So Friday before sundown to Sunday after sunrise includes all of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Good Friday, Easter weekend. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he predicts about himself. And they would have been totally confused by that because they don't have any room for him to even die, let alone be resurrected. But that's what he's talking about. Looking back on it, we see it so clearly. And in fact, you can track this then through the whole rest of the New Testament. This becomes the key proof that Jesus is the Christ, the one we must all hear. Jesus' message, like Jonah's, must be received as the word from God, must be heard in faith, must be repented of, and when it is heard and repented, it will bring life. How? How do we know that? The resurrection. The sign of Jonah. Just like him, he was buried, but not just like him, actually greater than him. He was literally dead after being literally killed on the cross under God's judgment. This is, this is the one who said this, who, who constantly said things that would be blasphemous for any human being to say. And God killed him on the cross, hung him on a tree, cursed, as Deuteronomy predicts. And then God brought him back to life again, not just out living out of a fish, but up from the dead out of a grave. 
He's like the prophet Jonah, but greater than him. And incidentally, Jesus' teaching is also greater than that of Solomon too. He doesn't prove this here. He just kind of tacks it on here at the end to, to state that as well. Certainly meaning for us to think back to all the teaching that we've seen from him and, and the great wisdom as he unpacks the law of God and applies it to our hearts and the great shepherding, the kingly shepherding that he does of all the scattered, helpless, and harassed sheep. He's the leader in power. He's the wise teacher. Greater than Solomon. All of that, all that we've been looking back at and all we see of, of him teaching and, and healing, all of it is a sign. All of them are signs that his... That, his, that this one is the king, that he is greater than the, the greatest Davidic king to date, Solomon. He's greater than, the, than the, the prophet Jonah. If we include verse 6 in this very chapter, he's greater than the temple itself and all the priests who serve there. Those three avenues through which God deals with and mediates his blessing to his people king and the prophet and the temple priests. All of them, Jesus is greater than, all of them are united in one person and then surpassed by that one person. In power and in mercy and in love and in authority, he's greater than everything. Jesus is the one we must hear. But obviously the people around him aren't. which is what leads Jesus to the indictment of verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the, at the end, and the queen of the south, referring to the queen of Sheba from 1 Kings, they will rise up as witnesses, and they will condemn. They'll say, we just had a man standing in front of us, and we realized that that was from God, and we repented. What were you doing? Turning away from Jesus. They'll be called as witnesses for the prosecution, and they will speak. God's great servant, anointed with power, full of the Holy Spirit, has come near to reject him it is tragic and devastating. And obviously, obviously, in that there is a warning. All that kind of boils down to this point right here. There is a warning for the person who's asking the question that's not really a question. If earlier when you pause and said, that might be me, that's not a safe spot to sit. There's a warning here. There's an offer, but there's a warning that to hold him at arm's length and, and pretend to be fair-minded about it leads to condemnation at the end. I have to say that to be fair to this passage. That's what Jesus is getting at as he is in dialogue with a whole group of people who are pretending to be open-minded but are not. Condemnation, terrible destruction is coming. That's the truth. Do not hold him at arm's length. God speaks about judgment, and when he speaks about judgment, he's always doing that because he actually means to hold out 
for the moment at this time an offer of mercy. That's why he bothers to speak of it. So if you sit there and you hear me saying something that sounds like, realize that that's coming right at you and it is not coming to kill. It is actually coming to pierce the defenses and open you up to be redeemed. Hear that. There's a warning there, but there's also an offer. To turn away from this leads to destruction, but to embrace it in faith, to hear him leads to life. That's his offer. He's the one you need. Repent and come to him. We have to say that, but I realize that most of us hearing, hearing this this morning, as I said, the, the context here, Jesus is talking 100% to an audience that is like that. That's not us this morning. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this, this passage? Well, in some similar ways, we should ask, okay, Christian, Do you realize, and I'll ask it again because what I mean to say is, do you really realize this happened? Paul preached in Athens to a whole city full of geniuses, to a, to a crowd prizing itself on its, on its intellectual aptitude, prizing itself on its, on its insight, on its philosophical depth. He preached to them, you know, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And how can we know that? He says to these people who are geniuses, who are worldly, worldly wise and who are intelligent, so how do we know this? He's given assurance to it by raising this man from the dead. And some people said, you have got to be kidding me. And some people said, what? Tell me more. It happened. We shouldn't be afraid of talking about it in, in the public spheres. We, we should say, this happened. This happened. And we shouldn't, not only out there, we should tell ourselves, this actually happened happened. So Christian, Jesus rose from the dead, which proves all of this is true. He's the judge. He's the king. He's the ruler. So Christian, do you hear him? Do you, do you hear him in faith repentantly today and tomorrow and the next day? If, he's, if this is all true, if he's the king, if he's the ruler, if he's the judge, then what that means, no less for us, is that we have an authority over us and his word is law for us as well. And we're talking just a second about how the beauty of it also means that we have a savior and a, and a redeemer. Absolutely. But we have no less than a king. And we also must hear him. There's no room in the Christian faith for Anything remotely like, thank goodness that I am a Christian, and now I will set that aside as some sort of fire insurance, and I will proceed with living as best my wisdom tells me to. No. Do you hear him in faith, repentantly, day by day? A Christian is saved to walk in obedience, responding to Jesus. We need to say that. 
But there is something sweet here also. The fact that he came out of the grave means also that you will too. i got to say the first part about hearing and, and responding and following in obedience. But we have to also say that every single one of us would answer that question. Yes, but no. i got feet made of clay. I follow him irregularly, sinfully, brokenly. Do I want to be more than that? Yeah, but, but that's, that's the truth. So God help me. And the answer here is yes. He does, he will. The gospel's true, which means that he will draw up next to you day by day by day. As you try to follow him and fail, as you fall down in sin, he'll draw up to you next to you day by day by day. He'll give you his help. He'll support you and he'll carry you all the way to the end. And when you die and are sown into the ground, he will raise you up imperishable. How do you know that? Because the tomb was empty. That's the truth. That is... That is perhaps easy for us to say, well, my heart still beats, and as far as I know, I'm perfectly healthy. When you stand at a graveside and look at a casket, it's a different take. Is it true or not? Yeah, it is. It's true. How do you know the tomb was empty? This is the sign. This is the sign carried throughout the New Testament. How do you know it's true? Well, people say this and people say that. There will always be people who, who reject it, but the evidence is against them when they do. His believing, beloved disciples, crushed and heartbroken, took his dead body off the cross and wrapped it up and put it in a tomb and wept because all hope was lost. They only got the body into their hands after the state executioners verified they'd done their job correctly. They put him in a tomb that then was guarded by the state with armed guards. They put a big rock in front of it and they walked away crushed because they didn't have any room for him to die and they certainly didn't understand this passage about him rising again. But then he did. And 500 people saw him. 500 people saw him. Several of them wrote down the account for us. Critics will say, well, we don't have any people who didn't believe who wrote down the account. Think about that for a second. <laughs> of course not. People say that. All you've got are Christians who wrote down the accounts. Exactly. Who's going to write down, I verify that Jesus of Nazareth came out of the grave alive again. I don't believe it but I verify it. Nonsense. People, when faced with that kind of dilemma, people avoid it. They don't write it down. Of course we don't have any non-believer accounts. We have non-believers saying that Christians say. We have Christians saying that he rose again. We have the evidence of people whose lives were changed, people who are heartbroken and despairing, who say, kill me if you want to. I know I'm going to live again. Why? Because the tomb was empty. I don't care what you do to me. I know. That's really, really different than people who say, I believe an idea, therefore I'll die for it. That's not the same category. Christianity is unique. 
based on this one fact, the tomb was empty, Jesus rose again. It's all true. Christian. Christian. It means that you've got a king that you have to follow. It also means you have a savior that will pick you up when you fail to follow him and will carry you all the way to the end and deliver you to heaven. Life again. You will come out of the grave again because he did. Hold that in front of your eyes when all that happens in life makes no sense. Trust him. That happened. That is good news. Hold it in front of your eyes and rejoice in him. Hold it up as your hope that you follow. We look back at this grace, this, um, this astonishing fact, the tomb was empty, and what that means for the future is all the promised grace is for real. Believe it and press on. Blessed are you who know this, who see it, whose eyes have been opened. He came out of the tomb alive. He's the one we must hear. Which leads to the second point, which is shorter. Talking about how we have to hear him, the second point clarifies something. We've got a similar structure, actually, if you're... If you're into looking at how texts are put together, last week we had two paragraphs, a statement and an explanation about the heart. This same thing here, a statement and then an explanation. Here it is. Hearing Jesus, like we've been talking about, hearing Jesus properly is to yield control to him in surrendered faith. Hearing Jesus properly is to yield control to him in surrendered faith. Here's what I mean by that. One might think, mistakenly, but one might think that, looking at this passage, like the queen of the south came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, we should come to hear Jesus' wisdom. And then, like the Ninevites heard Jonah and repented, maybe we should hear Jesus' wisdom See where we're in the wrong. See where we're, we're going astray from what Jesus' wise teaching tells us and then repent. Turn away from our folly and embrace Jesus' wisdom. Mend our ways. Fix our mistakes. Clean up our act. Start obeying him. Live worthy lives. Not conforming to what we used to do but conforming to his wise good teaching. One might think that a lot of people do. It's the basis of a whole religion. And a lot of people think that this is the Christian message, actually, that what Jesus does is he comes and, and tells us the way to walk, calls us to repent, and then he does, for sure, he helps us walk that out. But the point is, he tells us what to do and then helps us do it. That's Christianity. No, it is not. No, it is not. A lot of people say it is, no, it is not. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Jesus tells us this story here to correct that misunderstanding. It's not a real particular situation. There's several marks of being a made-up story. It's actually more akin to a parable than it is a historical account. 
It's, it's a, a story that he constructed that fits right in the context because he, he's talking about demon possession and he's talking to people who are an evil generation. He's talking in that context, but then he talks about a house and getting swept and whatnot. He, he's telling a story with a point to it. Suppose an unclean spirit has been cast out of a person before that unclean spirit was the controlling dominant force and this person was walking in all manner of evil. That's changed. doesn't say how because it doesn't matter. But the person is freed from that control such that she is able to sweep her house and put it in order. Straighten up, cleaned up, living right. But empty. Key point. Critical point. But empty. Unoccupied inside and therefore vulnerable. Jesus' obvious point is that this person cannot safely stand in some sort of middle ground spiritual neutrality. Here I am, I, I've, I've removed this evil influence. I, I have not brought on the holy influence. I'm going to stand right in the middle and of my own accord, I'm going to, I'm going to do me and I'm going to walk in this area that is this, this good and worthy and, and and appropriate, proper life. Not that, not this, this, this middle ground here. I don't, want to, I don't want to reject Jesus and whatnot, but I don't want any of that either. Me, right in the middle. Jesus says, can't stand there. You can for a time, and as he tells the story, there, the spirit takes some time wandering around in the desert and then comes back and finds a house unoccupied, takes a little more time to go find some more. But eventually, disaster. Worse than before. Because you can't stand in the middle. There is, no, there is no middle neutral ground in the spiritual war that's happening all around us. Now, some people get confused here and think, is he saying that everybody is demon-possessed? No, no. It's part of the story. But what he's talking about is what he says often, what the Bible says often, that there, there's a spiritual war going on all around us. And think of it like Ephesians 2 or 2 Timothy 2. Ephesians 2 says Satan, not actually demon-possessing, but Satan is at work in every non-Christian. Ephesians 2. 2 Timothy 2. He has taken them captive to do his will. Everyone, not demon-possessed, obviously. The people he's talking to are not all demon-possessed. But they are an evil generation under the influence of the evil one. And you cannot say, I'm going to not do that. I'm going to walk the straight and narrow. I'm going to shape up and clean up I'm not going to become a Christian and be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stay right here. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You'll be destroyed. It's verse 30 a second time. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not filled with me, you're filled with him. It's one or the other. That's what he wants to clarify for us. We do not properly hear Jesus by hearing his wise teaching, believing his wise teaching, and resolving to obey his wise teaching. That leads to destruction. We hear Jesus properly by hearing his wise teaching 
and then mourning in spirit saying, I do not keep it. I, I want to. I see it as good. Help. And I have nothing in my hands. Poor in spirit. I bring nothing with me. Help. And by help, I mean, will you do it all? To hear him properly means I cannot be what you require. I see it as good and right. And I see you, I see the sign that you have given. You promise, you speak a message that promises that with repentance you will give life. You don't speak a message that calls me to obey more closely or more carefully. You speak a message that offers that repentance, life, help. Nothing in my hands I bring. Mourning over my sin I come and say I seek a righteousness that I cannot make. Please. And Jesus says, there you go. That will bring my spirit to live inside of you and you will never walk in that darkness again. You'll be full of me. That's how we hear Jesus. Do not be mistaken. There are a lot of people right around us everywhere who will say the message, the, the gospel even, they'll use that word, the gospel is that God tells us what we are to do. No, it is not. The gospel is that God sent his own son to die and to be raised again, to die to pay for my not doing what he requires, and to raise him up again to give me life at the end anyway. Who? Those who believe. That's the gospel. I hear him and I see what he commands, and I also hear him and say, what I need is a new heart full of your Holy Spirit. And when that happens, then, then, after that, new fruit grows. New fruit grows. Perfectly? No, I still need him. But it grows for real. You change the tree. You change the heart by the Spirit coming and living inside of you. And then what comes after that is a different life. Surrendered control of life. Surrendered control of heart. With nothing in my hands, Lord, help that's what it means to hear Jesus properly. If you haven't done that, you need to. And if you have, blessed are you, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you, you shall see God. I think that Matthew is a the Gospel of Matthew is brilliant. How it is all tied together. How so consistently what Jesus says is hard and firm and gracious and hope-filled. And all of it hinges on do we hear him properly with nothing in our hands, mourning over our sin, crying out, help. To him, the one who was raised from the dead. Let me pray. Lord, help. We're all in a number of different places. We have a number of different thoughts running through our heads. We have a number of different circumstances that we're facing. But each one of us needs your help. So please, Lord, draw near. We hear your call, we hear your offer, and we say we need your help. So please respond. Pour out your spirit on us. Most of us here, Lord, we, we are a church. Most of us here, we know you and have known you. So we pray, would you, 
refresh? Would you renew? Would you, would you stir? Would you encourage? And maybe there are some here who, who hear this who don't know you. Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you, would you bring conviction and would you bring hope? Almost simultaneously, would you bring the hope that allows conviction to strike home? Would you bring the hope that points out that you are a sufficient and beautiful Savior? Would you save? Do your work, Lord, we pray. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.